Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. I'm your host, Brian C. Adams. Tune in weekly to hear from top industry leaders as we discuss relevant topics in the world of business, investing, health and wellness, geopolitics, and more. To learn more about the show, visit excelsiorgp.com slash podcast. Hello and welcome to today's exclusive episode of the Capital Club Podcast. This is the first time we're doing this. I hope you'll enjoy this bonus episode we've decided to add into the mix this week. You'll hear today what was a really cool opportunity for us. I was invited to be a panelist. It's as a recurring gig with a good friend of mine who runs a commercial real estate investor podcast called Tyler Cobble. He's a local Nashville guy who I've known for a long time. He has an excellent following on YouTube and very thoughtful person. The panel is myself, Tyler, Logan Freeman, and, and Dave Kodria. Between the four of us, we've syndicated hundreds of millions of dollars worth of commercial real estate. And everyone offered kind of really good insight into kind of what we're seeing in the market today, what we're anticipating moving forward. And it was a great kind of hour-long conversation about where we are in 2023 and where we think we're going to be. And we even kind of project into Q4 and Q1 in terms of the current environment and where we're finding opportunity while we're staying away, away from. So I think you really enjoy this episode, but please do let us know. Feedback, questions are always really appreciated. As always, please do leave us a review. Let us know if you'd like to hear more episodes like this. Like I said, this will be, I think every two weeks, a recurring conversation with the panel with Tyler acting as the MC. So please do also want to give a shout out to Tyler's podcast and his YouTube channel, the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast. Give it a follow. Give it a listen. He's a very thoughtful guy, and I think you'll get a lot of really good value out of it. So enjoy, and, and let us know what you think. Thanks so much. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast. Excited to be with you all today with another new segment that we are introducing to the show, the Investors Roundtable. So I've assembled a group. I, I honestly don't think that we could have a better group of investors to talk about the commercial real estate market and where we stand today. And honestly, I'm, I'm amazed that I was able to get all four of us in a room at the same time. This group has syndicated hundreds of millions of dollars with the commercial real estate in various really sectors of the market. Some of them are more local and some of us are investing abroad as well. And by abroad, I mean out of state or out of city. 
but we've got Dave Codre, Logan Freeman, and Brian Adams. Welcome to the show, guys. Dave, I'll let you kind of kick it off and introduce yourself. Yeah, thanks, Tyler. Excited to get this rolling today. Um, running an investment shop down in Atlanta, Georgia, and really kind of diversified across a bunch of different asset types and my spare time. Pretty active adventure, taking my kids and going around the country, seeing what's happening. Love so it. would be here. Log- nice. Logan? Yeah, thanks for having me, Tyler. Always a pleasure to speak to you and your audience. And we're a Midwest-focused retail investment shop, and we're in Kansas City, Missouri. We've done multifamily. We have done a lot of multifamily. That's been tough the last couple of months. And I'll talk about, about why we made kind of a shift back into commercial real estate, the neighborhood retail shopping center thesis. But we've added a little bit of flex industrial in there too, following in, in Brian's footsteps. And really, I think that Sam Zell said it best. He was a professional opportunist, right? And I was kind of thinking about where we could find and exploit opportunity in, in at least our markets. And uh, our markets being Missouri, Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa, Arkansas, and Oklahoma. And really where I bring any type of value to investors is being able to uh, go to the properties, see them, manage them, and uh, bring the deals. And I can't do that necessarily nationwide at this point with our scale. So we decided to really focus in on three asset classes that we think have a strong future, and we could actually go find opportunities for investors. And that's kind of where we've where we've fallen into. One other thing that I'll mention is we've been able to help many folks on their 1031 exchanges through our brokerage. And it's been a great experience to get to see the market from two perspectives. One, acquiring real estate, and then two, being the managing broker of our brokerage. And I know, Tyler, you're involved in that as well. And I do think it gives you a very unique perspective because when you're listing properties or going to acquire properties, you can one, see through some of the maybe marketing materials that you were previously given and or you may be able to bring some relationships to the table. So I'm here to learn just as much as everybody else and just share some experiences that I've had over the last four or five years. Brian? Yeah, Tyler, thanks so much for having me. I'm in your backyard. So we have chewed a lot of the same dirt, as they say. My wife is a native Nashvillian. Tyler and I have a lot of shared connections, too much to get into on the show, but I appreciate you having me. I've been in the syndication business for 12 years now. So raising money on a deal-by-deal basis from accredited but non-institutional investors, and that's where I spend the majority of my time. I have a legacy firm that was focused on suburban office, and so we can get into what I think is happening with office. But my primary focus for the last five years has been light industrial, flex, and medical office, mostly in the Southeast. So the Sun Belt, Texas, Tennessee, Florida, Carolinas, Atlanta. And appreciate you having me on and look forward to getting into it. Yeah, this is great. I'm really excited to have everybody in here because at some point I've learned a significant amount about commercial real estate investing and syndication from each of you. And y'all have all been invaluable sounding boards. So Logan, I want to touch on your point with the brokerage, vertically integrating your commercial real estate firm. Dave, I know you've definitely done this. And Brian, I think you have as well. Having those teams in-house that can help you, one, as your in-house partners, but also do third-party work, it's been huge for us. I mean, starting out my investment career, I was brokering deals, even though I was buying deals back in 2019, I still brokered up until this past year. And that was a huge cash flow situation for me. And to this day, the brokerage is still a, a cash flow piece. Have y'all found that with your businesses? Does it serve you outside of just your own interests? Yeah, I'll go ahead and speak to that. I think that 
for us, it's a definitely competitive advantage. And the reason being is it, it just keeps you on your game. Frankly, it's been a tough year for acquisitions, comparatively speaking to other previous 12 months, right? So I think that just staying in the game and understanding what people are talking about and what lenders are actually playing in the game and what sellers and buyers are saying, it really does direct the acquisition process for the private equity company. But also, let's be honest, I mean, if you're not acquiring properties as an acquisitions business, it can be tough to ride out some of these storms, which is why I'm so interested to see how many of these firms that we've seen been created the last couple of years really can. Because if you're not acquiring real estate, the structure of a lot of these investments is to acquire and sell real estate. And so you're acting as a broker in some sort of capacity, whether or not you're owning the real estate or not. And so for us, it's been great to, to keep the pulse on the market, to stay in the game, to understand what's going on. And then it absolutely has brought us opportunities that we wouldn't otherwise have found through our networks. And so I think it's extremely important to, one, stay in the game and stay sharp. But two, when you're not acquiring real estate, you don't have to go do more deals just because you need to acquire real estate to keep the lights on. So property management is not a big revenue center or profit center, I would say, for a lot of us, but it is a definitely competitive advantage. And then two, the brokerage side absolutely keeps the fees rolling, builds multiple relationships. Some of those folks turn into passive investors. Some of them turn into tenancy and common investors. Or if you're managing the asset and you know it really well and that seller wants to get out, guess who's going to get the first look? You are. And so I do think it does bring some scalability from that standpoint as well. Dave, Brian, y'all want to touch on that at all? Yeah, sure. I, the syndication model or buying deals, you, you never really want to be in a position where you have to buy a deal. Like that kind of stinks. You're like, man, I have to go buy something, either keep the lights on or keep something moving. So anytime you're, you can have multiple streams of not only revenue, but things that you're doing with your team. So there's always a more creative way to look at a problem than, hey, the only thing we can do is go buy something to, to keep the machine going. You know, we're... We don't do the brokerage side, but we do plenty of the property management side. We do a good amount of internal leasing. We do a lot of CapEx work. So there's all sorts of different parts of it that you could choose to tackle. You just got to make sure you have the right people and the right team to say, hey, I'm going to do the brokerage side or I'm going to do the CapEx side to kind of bolt on onto your project. And another thing we're looking at too is just by doing that stuff, it narrows your performance gap, right? So you don't have like big swings up and down in one area whether that's just the timeline of a CapEx project or the timeline of a brokerage sale, you bring some of that stuff in-house or you at least get your feet wet with some of it, you can you can narrow your margin of up and down there. That's why we're doing a lot of the in-house stuff as well. Yeah, that's great. Brian, did you have anything you wanted to add? Yeah, just kind of some commentary. I think everything that the guy said is completely true in terms of how it can be accretive to your business and it can actually be a really good revenue source during challenging times. I think going a layer deeper, if you're a GP or a real estate entrepreneur trying to get into this business, you really should take a step back and think, okay, what kind of business do I want to be in? I want to be a sponsor and a GP and private equity. I also want to have internal property management and be vertically integrated. And I want brokerage, which means you're going to get into the third party world, right? All those things are fine. What I would say is you should listen to people like Logan and others who have been doing this for a while and really understand the pros and cons and make a conscious choice that you want to be in that type of business as opposed to just saying, oh, I'm going to try to capture some fees. I'm going to try to get some revenue here. I'm going to try to take all the pieces of the pie that are involved in the acquisition 
And then the other side is as an LP, if you're an investor thinking about allocating towards a sponsor, these are really good questions to ask, right? Like what other parts of the business do you have? How does revenue share work? How many partners do you have? Are you looking to grow that business organically? Are you buying up books? These are really well-informed, like beyond just kind of preliminary questions and diligence to get into people's business model. So I don't think it's kind of right, wrong, or indifferent, but they're great questions to ask that usually people don't really think much on either as an entrepreneur or as an investor. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly going to create more headache, right? For you as the general partner, if you're going to be vertically integrating. I mean, property management was the first additional business that I added to my portfolio. And man, I got to be honest with you, for the first two, three, four years of owning that company, it was miserable because we weren't at scale enough for me to not have to deal with it. We finally hit that within the last six months to where it's not an everyday thing for me. It's basically a once a week deal now. But man, you think about how much of a distraction that can be, right? I mean, if you're trying to buy deals, getting called to deal with property management issues is not accretive to that. Well, no, if you're in multifamily like you guys are, I think being vertically integrated and having property management is like table stakes. It makes a ton of sense. And it's a really good business to be in. If you're doing triple net 15-year lease retail deals, is it just a fee grab? Like, I don't know, maybe. There's not a whole lot to do. So I don't think it's as simple as like, yes or no. And so we have to get a little bit more educated, but yeah. Yeah, I think what Brian said, what kind of organization do you want to be? is extremely important because Tyler, you and I, and Dave, I don't know if you did or not, but you and I grew up in the brokerage world. So that's what we knew, right? That's how we entered into this business. Not necessarily the property management world, but we worked alongside multiple property companies because we had to make referrals for our clients. But now we made the conscious decision to grow that, grow into that type of organization. And so having that when you're not doing new deals also allows you to Retain talent, which I think is extremely important for a team. I always think about enterprise value, right? Because we started with three people and now we have 30 plus. And so it's enterprise value. What am I actually creating? It's the systems, it's the processes, it's the technology, but I can't do it all when you have all those different portions of your business. And so if you can grab great talent, you can train them the right way, you can build a better organization. I think that's a really important aspect to remember as we're looking to continue to grow and develop all of the competitive uniques, as some companies would call it, is is for us to develop talent over the long haul. And I think that's ex- extremely important. But your entry into the business, I think, also has a really big impact on if you do those types of businesses or not. Because I, I, it was natural for me because I, I started as a broker and just didn't want to stop doing that because I, I frankly loved it and then found some great talent to retain and have been developing that talent since. And that's kind of the same way we've done the property management side as well. Yeah. Dave, did you have anything you wanted to add there? The building the team part is always interesting, right? Like who's going to go and which part of it? I mean, are you guys using different personality tests or profiles or how are you figuring out who's going to be the best fit in this part of the business versus the other side? Because in our shop, they're kind of separate functions within each one. They've got separate books and financials on how they're performing because an LP investor isn't necessarily investing in your brokerage shop. They're investing in how that deal is doing. And in the brokerage shop, the property management, construction, they've all got to maintain performance with what's commercially available in the market, right? So they got to perform to market standards and hopefully better to perform well. So it's like, what kind of avenues are you guys looking at to fill those team members and make sure you've got the best team out there knowing none of us have like hundreds and hundreds of people that are on a team, right? We're pretty lean operations. 
Tyler, I'd like to make one more comment. I think oftentimes people who start these GP sponsor syndication firms, they start with the firm that they want to create as opposed to the one servicing the LPs they want to work with. And a lot of this conversation about structure, different arms and branches of the business is going to be dictated by what LPs you work with, right? If you're working with institutional pension plans and endowments and insurance companies, they're going to expect certain structures. Certain things are going to be kosher to them and some things are not, right? In terms of disclosing fees or different structures in terms of being vertically integrated, they're going to be expected or not. Meanwhile, if you're working with individuals and families, they may not care as much, right? They may be focused on different parts. So I think you should start from the back and work your way forward if you really want to build a good GP sponsor platform and focus more on the LPs you want to work with and dictating that will dictate the structure of what everything else looks like. Yeah, I think that's completely true, right? I mean, you look at the way that I've built my firm, for better or worse, it's mostly friends and family. I mean, we do almost all 506B syndications. And while that was great, and we'll definitely get into this today because I'm trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. It's great having those investors that are willing to, on average, write a $94,000 check per deal. But then you think about what a $4 million, $5 million capital raise looks like, and you're running your head through walls. But my company was basically designed for that friends and family model where they all care that I have my hands on every aspect of the deal because they know I can trust me. Whereas that doesn't really scale for necessarily, I mean, it might for a family office, but institutional capital, absolutely not. If I was going to go buy an apartment complex, they're going to say, you can't have your management company do this. Graystar is coming in. They're going to handle it. They manage tens of thousands of units. So I agree with that. Yeah, so, a few of the assessments that we have used that, that I think are very helpful, and I'm in a group here with a bunch of much more experienced CEOs, that I, and I know Brian's involved in, in them, so they probably speak to these a lot, but the culture assessment is definitely one that is widely used. It takes a lot of knowledge from your standpoint. You have to really dive into understanding it. Easier ones to maybe understand are strength finders. It doesn't really necessarily tell you where they should be at. But then we also use uh, Ray Dalio's Principles U, which I like a lot. It's free and, and he's done a lot of work with Adam Grant on that, on that assessment. That being said, you absolutely do find that folks will be a better fit in one position than the other. And we've done a lot of moving around through those organizations. But the way that we have structured them is they're different companies. So, And the only thing that we do from a third party standpoint, I need to, to mention, is brokerage. So uh, we don't manage other people's properties. We don't do construction or CapEx for anybody else. It's just, hey, if you want to sell or you want to buy a property, we can help you find that. And the brokerage really doesn't really talk to the private equity or the commercial real estate property management business. So I think that's important to know too, is you can do this for yourself or you could try to scale a business for a third party. But each one of those decisions have different ramifications because managing a third party client on a management basis is a lot different than managing your own assets from a compliance standpoint and from and expectations. That's right. And if you're sitting there wondering, what does this have to do with the commercial real estate market update? I'm going to loop it back because over the last two, three years, I mean, really, let's say the last 10 years, just about anybody could go out and syndicate a deal and be successful and make a significant amount of money through acquisition fees and, and whatnot. 
going through this process. And now people are starting batting down the hatches. Most every investor that I've been talking to, they're not buying deals right now. And so if you have a model where all you do is buy deals and that's the only way that you get paid, it's going to be a rough couple of years. And so we've been doing a lot of reflection in-house on our assets of what are we going to do now? Because a lot of what I do is heavy value add ground up development. Well, lenders don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole right now. And I'm not going to go out and raise 100% equity or even 50% equity for these deals because that's tough to pull off. So we're looking at what are those alternatives that we have. And honestly, I mean, I think the best conclusion I've come to is to acquire businesses and vertically integrate. I know that's a complete left turn from real estate or at least partially so, but we've got a property management company. Why don't we go buy an HVAC company? Because we have 2.1 million square feet of commercial real estate that we're managing. How can we increase our cash flow in other ways to really protect ourselves through this downturn and, and keep the lights on? So are you guys, a lot has changed in the last 12 months. I mean, we're almost coming up right on 12 months when interest rates really started hiking up. How have y'all changed your strategy and what's your outlook moving forward for the next couple of years? I'll take that and I'll let Brian <laughs> finish it off because I'm very interested to hear his perspective. But I'll just touch on one thing is I think that what we have done is really taken a very close look at what can be automated and systemized in our business. And it's not because I don't want to employ people, it's because artificial intelligence is changing the game. And it, if I fall behind on that, then I'm going to lose. And so we have spent a decent amount of time either outsourcing routine tasks. And a prime example is, all right, we get the T12, the rent rolls, all that. We send that out to a third party. We've coached them on our underwriting model. First draft comes back from them. Then our associate uh, analyst goes in. Then our director of acquisitions goes in. And then it comes to investment committee. It used to just be us three just doing that. So that is saving 20, 30, 40 hours a week just looking at deals. So that's one way that we've done this. And the other way is on the management side, there's so many great companies now that have artificial intelligence that allow you to really be on all the time. And I love these things from Naval Ravikant. If you guys have spent any time with him, he's all about leverage. What lever can I put in place? So one example of this is I run a leasing team on a residential property management company. And the lever that I installed 60 days ago allows for prospective tenants to or residents to uh, reach out to our team, it's AI, at any given time and understand what the availability is, what the fees are, what the property looks like, where it's located, ask all of these questions. And I'm getting data in now that about 90% of the conversations that I was previously not having with prospective tenants are happening after hours or on the weekends. So those are just a couple levers that I think are extremely important. And I think that you need to watch, especially as JLL rolls out the first GPT model for commercial real estate here more recently. How are we as sponsors and owners utilizing that technology to create better returns for our investors? And the reason I, I say that is really freeing up more time for everybody on this call to do what they're best at. And so they that everything else can be done to a certain extent. So I just want to say that's kind of been a huge shift for us the last 12 months is really trying to figure out ways that we can utilize these technologies and implement them in a regular basis to supercharge what we're actually doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. So I'll kind of take it and run with it before I hand off to Dave. First on the deal side, for a long time, it was a really good business to buy 
decent cap rate deals with in-place cash flow and put cheap debt on them, capture that arbitrage and give that yield to the investors. LPs were super happy. They were getting a 300, 400 basis point premium over the 10 year. They were looking for yield. You could push through that depreciation, hopefully sell some stuff at a profit. It's a great business. That business is now gone. And for the first time in a long time since I've been doing this, there are viable alternatives to people in that they don't need to invest in real estate. They can get 5% in a T-bill, right? So you've got to change your business model. So I love being a sponsor as I can pivot. So now we're looking for more deep value-add, IRR-driven, shorter-duration type properties, which I think lends itself well to today's environment in terms of I think there will be opportunities that come across there. But you have to be responsive to what your LPs want. And again, it's all about solving a problem for them. And giving them 6 or 7% is not really solving a problem for them today. So we're trying to kind of go back to what we were doing initially, which is more of this deep value-add opportunistic type acquisition. So that's kind of on the deal side. On the business side, this is the third time that I've been through one of these things, right? 2008, COVID, and now this. When things are slow, and I think Logan's exactly right, and Tyler, you mentioned this, for the last five years, deal shops have been doing deals and people have been very focused on acquisition, rightfully so. I think they made a lot of sense. When things slow down, people tend to make really poor choices when they have that much time on their hands. And so what I've found success with is kind of what Logan was saying, I choose a part of the business that I think needs to be addressed, that we put on the back burner and we, I go really deep into putting together systems and processes and documented organizations internally where we can kind of take it to that next level. So for us, it's social media. We're going to different channels, different platforms. We were working with a third-party marketing group. We've internalized that now, and we've got some really great kind of virtual assistants that are in the Philippines helping us to kind of take the content we're creating and migrate it across different platforms in a very efficient, repeatable manner. And so that's where we're going to be spending the next, I think, three to four months, frankly, before hopefully rates start going down. So you've got to get the team focused on something else and you've got to keep working on different parts of your business, but you have to be realistic. Last year, we did nine acquisitions. I think we'd be pretty happy if we did four to five this year. That's just the reality of where we are. And so that's kind of how we're thinking things on kind of a deal level and then a business level. Yeah, I, I agree with that velocity of deals is maybe half. If we do half as much this year, it's like, that sounds like we did pretty well this year compared to previous years. And that time is, whether it's better leverage or better efficiency in your business, but how do you just improve operations and continually make them better? And that's really going to separate, I know, what deals perform well going forwards over the next, maybe rates are high for three months, maybe they're high for three years, but whatever that time frame is, Finding ways to incrementally improve the business is going to pay like exponential dividends long term. So it's interesting. Look, you're doing the AI stuff and different chatbots that can help add leverage to a leasing team. We're trying to look at like remote access and cameras so people can see more what's going on at different locations without necessarily having to be there 24 7 or all the time or paying for offsite security. You know, a lot of that stuff adds up and starts eating away at your operating costs. Uh, over time, it's like there's got to be a technology way to make stuff more efficient. So now, with half the deal flow, like 
probably a good amount of time to go seek out those solutions and implement them now. Tyler, I'll make a prognostication. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here, I think the only worse business to be in than real estate is venture. I have some very legitimate venture people that tell me that they think that north of 55 0% of all venture-backed companies and venture funds will be gonzo in the next 24 months. I think directionally, that's probably the same for a lot of these fundless sponsor, fundless sponsor syndicators. I think 50% or north of them will be gone the next 36 months. As these IO periods burn off, asset management becomes a real challenge and they can't refinance or they can't sell. I think there'll be a big washout, which is just a really good opportunity for folks that have a good foundation and a really good business, take advantage of that fallout. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think... Oh, go ahead, Logan. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, no, none, none of us really set the table of where how we got here, right? Like, how do we get here? Well, let's go back to pre-COVID when the Green Street Property Price Index was right around 134. This is just an indices that covers all major food groups of the asset types, okay? We, during COVID, so I think it was probably... April to October of that year, if I could remember right, it troughed down about 120. Ever since, when the debt was super cheap, we skyrocketed all the way back almost to 160, which was the highest level of all time in commercial real estate prices. Since then, we've seen the fastest and, and largest rate hike in history. And so we are back down to pre-COVID levels of the uh, on the indices. But what's different? Well, what's different is there's a massive buyer-seller gap still because of investor psychology. And Howard Marks talks about this at length in all of his books. That takes time to get through the industry, especially in the commercial real estate industry. And so you have sellers that are still wanting to sell at a forecap, and you have buyers wanting to try to make a deal pencil because they need to do a deal. And there's a bridge or there's a gap. And that gap is still pretty large. It's going to be for quite some time. But for intrinsic value investors, this is what Brian was talking about. He's looking for intrinsic value of the, of the property. What can I get it for now? What can it be from a cash flow standpoint later? If I actually force appreciation, that's what you have to do now. So it's no longer lipstick on the pig, flip that apartment complex or that property and you get a, the greater fool's theory and somebody buys it for a higher price. And so you really have to understand location. You have to understand construction. You have to understand what Dave's talking about when he's talking about cameras and security, because that is what makes real estate deals better, is actually doing that type of work. It's not the sexy stuff. It's not going in and putting granite countertops in and flipping the thing. It's really understanding the location 
who's actually going to drive revenue at the location, whether it be a, a commercial real estate asset or multifamily, how do we then go execute that on a regular basis to actually force more NOI and not worry about a cap rate right now because that's done. So let's get to cash flowing and really buy at a good basis. And I think that's extremely important. And so when I look at real estate deals now, I, being negatively leveraged, unless it's a deep value add deal, is very tough. And I think that one, the investor psychology from sellers and buyers is at hand, but it's also with your LPs. So the 15% IRR deals or whatever it was, 20% IRR deals day one or whatever people were showing, that's going to be tough. And so it's a different it's a different pitch. It's a different perspective, but it's not different than history, historical. It's just different than the last 10 years. And so Peter Lindemann, Dr. Peter Lindemann, I think said it great on Willie Walker's podcast. If you have capital and you have courage when others don't and you have a long-term perspective in this business, you're going to be okay. But that's a difficult proposition to then translate and communicate to LP investors in today's environment. So that's kind of where you're, where the industry is at. It's all, it's in flux, right? It's in flux. Now, Brookfield's asset manager comes out today or yesterday, whenever, and said he thinks the best buying opportunity is coming. And I've been studying Phil Anderson's book, The Secret Life of Real Estate and Banking. I've been studying Mastering the Market Cycles from Howard Marks. I think it's very important for younger sponsors, especially like myself, who have not been through the GFC, or even previous to that, to understand that history doesn't often repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And that's important to keep a perspective. So that's kind of my take on the market right now. But I love hearing that we're talking about true things that you can do at properties to force appreciation through either resident or tenant retention or getting new residents at those places or tenants, because that's what it's going to take to be successful here in the future. We put together a free resource available exclusively to our podcast listeners. If you're looking for strategies to safeguard your portfolio against inflation, you want to check out our latest guide on the best alternative investments to consider. Head to ExcelsiorGP.com slash download to learn more. Well, the groups that are going to survive this are the ones that are actual professional real estate investors, right? I mean, we've seen so much over the last, especially three years, private equity firms or hedge funds that hadn't necessarily focused in certain sectors of real estate for a while, suddenly jumping into these other new ventures because they had more cash than sense. And that's it. now is a very difficult time to do that. I mean, the amount of people that I know in the multifamily world alone that were buying assets with an adjustable rate mortgage in 21 and 22 is mind boggling because I, I don't know a time in the United States, we're buying commercial real estate on an adjustable rate mortgage was ever a good idea, especially when you know that we've had the lowest interest rates in history for the longest time. So I think that, I think you're right. I mean, it's it, there's going to be a huge buying opportunity coming up. And so while it's easy to get frustrated with how the market's been over the last couple of years with everything getting so expensive, there's going to be a lot of really good buying opportunities coming up. Yeah. And I would just say that if you haven't read that book, you don't need to read that book. Reach out to me. I will give you, I will send everybody here a summary of that book. So it's a big, thick one. And if you don't like history, don't read it. But it was highly interesting to me. But I put a five to six page report together for my team, for my brokerage team, and for our director of acquisitions. And I'm not saying that there's an 18.6 property cycle, a year property cycle, but it's very interesting to read about and learn about. And Dalio has ingrained in my mind that we need to study history to understand the future 
But there are guys like Mark Moss out there that also are mentioning, well, technology is here and that is something we have to take into account as well. But uh, happy to share that little report that has some really cool graphs and things on it with anybody here so you guys can take a look at it. It it was eye-opening for me. Yeah, that's really cool. Logan, if you want to send that to me, I can put a link to your website or to wherever you have that hosted in the YouTube description. Dave, I want to hear from you kind of what's going on in your world because you guys, I met you, first met you like six or seven years ago. Y'all were doing a lot of value add multifamily. I mean, kind of the quintessential like syndication story, right? Like you guys have grown that pretty significantly and the market started to shift and y'all started exploring commercial real estate and you've since kind of grown that. So talk about that journey. Thinking about that, Ron, it's definitely the entrepreneurial opportunistic, like where can you find some opportunity? knowing we started really in the property management side, not on the brokerage side. So we started operating. We haven't bought an apartment deal since like 2019, probably. Because even at that point, we're saying, man, this looks a little frothy. We're probably a little bit early. We definitely left some money on the table on that front. But over the past couple of years, we've been finding great opportunities. Medical, there were some good spreads above cap rate to debt in medical. That's kind of been eroded over the past. Everything kind of got eroded with the cap rates going up and we bought a lot of net lease deals as well and not stuff in like the, there were Starbucks on the four caps, which is mind boggling. But even with rates going up now, deals are still transacting at like a seven cap, which isn't crazy on the net lease front. So we've been able to buy shorter term net lease deals and sell them with longer leases and still get a good cap rate spread. So there's always something out there. There's some kind of opportunity that's in real estate. It just takes a little bit of digging to go find out what it is. Right now, we're bullish on office. Now, I don't know if there's a lot of people that are out there saying, hey, we want to go find some office space, but we're buying a deal right now that's vacant office. We're getting it at a great price point that we're optimistic about. We're going to convert it. So we feel like it's a good spot. I'm not sure where the future of office is going to go as a whole, but this is like suburban, single story, ground stuff, not urban high rise. That's a whole different, that's a whole different planet from where we operate. Yeah. We're going to have a contractor on the show on Wednesday to talk about what it actually looks like to convert office into multifamily. Cause we have been getting that question a lot. And I don't think that it's nearly as easy or as simple of an answer as, Hey, just turn it into apartments. Cause it doesn't really work like that with all the utilities and everything, but that'll be an interesting conversation for that. Brian, I mean, you've got a background in office space and now you've kind of pivoted into some medical and some flex. So let's kind of hear about your opinion on the office environment and why you've moved into the industries that you've moved into. Before Brian speaks, I want to say something. This man right here, he's on this side of me on the screen. Then I sent him a deal, an office deal, I don't know, 16 months ago. He texts me back and says, the days of buying office from a price per pound square foot basis is over. I'm not doing it anymore. And I walked from that deal. So I just want to make sure, and this was not a conversion. It was a true office suburban deal. So the, my office guy that I text sends that back to me. I say, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to listen to him. So I just wanted to hype him up just a little bit before he gets locked. Well, I hope that deal didn't turn out to be some kind of home run thing, but you know, and, and I don't want to cast aspersions on Dave's deal. Like every deal stands on its own, obviously. And I can only speak to my experience, but In today's environment, I think driving NOI is the key, right? And it's really hard to do in multifamily. It's really hard to do in stabilized retail. It's really hard to do in self-storage. 
one of the few places that you can do it is in medical, I think, off-campus, multi-tenant medical office, and then light industrial flex. And, and we don't need to get into the rationale behind that, but that's why we pivoted to those assets. And in this type of interest rate environment, I think you need to be able to drive NOI to create value for your LPs. And that's kind of where we've gone to. In terms of office and what Logan was alluding to, I bought a lot of office, probably $250 million worth of, of office over the last 10 years. It can be a value trap, right? You can go into a world where you say, I'm buying this thing at $65 a square foot, and that's at a huge discount to replacement cost. New construction is going to cost me $300, $400, $500, $600 a square foot, whatever number you want to put on it. And this is a great deal. The challenge is, again, if you go back to NOI growth after tenant improvement dollars, after leasing commissions, after your operating expenses, after modified gross leases, and all of that CAM exposure, it's really hard to drive NOI over a long period of time. It's not to say that it's impossible. It's just really challenging, I think, because especially multi-tenant tower deals, right? If it's two, three stories, elevators crush you, your lobby crushes you, your parking lot crushes you, roof, HVAC, foundation, it eats into your cash flow pretty considerably. So I think it's a really good time to do development, frankly. It's probably a really good time to take down some of these traditional offices and make them more flex oriented. If it's single story, that's great. The reason we got to light industrial flex is because it's all the things that office isn't. They're single story, they're triple net, they're separately metered, they have no common area exposure, right? So tenants are responsible for HVAC. The only things I really need to worry about are the roof and the parking lot. And so in terms of office as a fundamental investment class, I think it's pretty challenging right now. And even if you can get super cheap, I want to hear the story about how you're going to create long-term value there because the challenge too for Suburban, and again, I mostly played in the Southeast and the Midwest. If you take a market like Kansas City, and this is what I told Logan, Kansas City is a great market. We own a ton of assets there. I go there a couple of times a year. I love Mahomes. It's a great place. Suburban rents for Suburban in what's qualified as Class A, which at this point can be 20 or 30-year vintage properties, can be Class A, real rents have plateaued for 20 to 25 years. They've been stuck within range bound of 25 to 30 bucks a square foot on a modified gross basis longer than I've been doing this, right? Long, for 25 years. And so it's really hard to juice that IRR if that's just going to be where you end up. And so I think it's just going to be really challenging for some of this legacy class A, class B suburban office I know a lot of opportunistic funds that are out there raising capital right now saying they could take down these deals. More power to them. I hope they're really successful. I just don't see the fundamentals working really well right now. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to let you, Dave, I'm going to let you defend yourself here in a second. I will say- I wasn't attacking Dave's deal. No, no, I know. (laughs) I know. I mean, I completely agree with the office assessment from you, Brian. I mean, I think 80, 90% of the market- is going to have a really hard time. I mean, especially like downtown class A office space. I I don't see how that makes a comeback. A lot of those companies have the capability and I guess probably the desire to, and and management abilities to 
have remote employees. A lot of small businesses don't though. And that's where, I mean, I don't have a big office portfolio. I've got 50,000 square feet of office space. So it's not that much, but it's class B minus class C plus. It's located within neighborhoods. They're smaller buildings and they have smaller spaces in them that kind of cater perfectly to smaller businesses. And we've actually seen our occupancy rates and rental rates go up in the past few years pretty strongly, which has been nice. But you look at the Nashville office market fundamentals, we're like a huge exception. But I think there is something to be said there for focusing on more entrepreneurial small businesses instead of going towards these bigger floor plates, focusing on 50 plus employee companies. But Dave, tell us a little bit more about your deal. Yeah, I mean, this is this will probably be like the 10th one of these that we've done now. And it's just taken office that's not being used and taken it out of the pool, right? So we're office, our submarkets, maybe it's like 75% occupied roughly. And we can take a single story one and just convert it to flex. And as long as it's like five to 10,000 square feet, that stuff's leasing super quick. I mean, flex is probably 97% occupied. I would say that's just in any of the markets we're operating in the Southeast, even ones we're not in, right? Like in the Southeast, it's pretty occupied. So right now it's kind of, it seems like the easiest quick play of saying, hey, we're going to take office. We're going to, as long as it functions as single story with roll up doors and it can work and you can get it to a a flex user, a, a smaller user, not a 50,000 square foot, 100,000 square foot floor plate. That stuff's, that's a whole different ballgame. But as long as we can do that, we feel confident we can take office pretty quickly and get it in from a essentially unused asset to a used asset. Our flex rates, the stuff we're looking at in North Atlanta is around $12 a square foot net. And the office building we're buying, it's got about 35% tenants left and they're paying around 14 for office space. And it's a modified, complicated lease that's there. So we've got some, they don't necessarily leave right away. So they've got some time left on their leases. But yeah, I think that's real. Yeah. I mean, I think it's an opportunity to find those, but there's still a ton of office that I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen with that stuff. You know? Yeah. I mean, Dave, that's a story that totally resonates with me. We're under LOI on a deal in Marietta, similar profile. And I, I think it makes all the world of sense. What Tyler's talking about, which is really scary. And this is where it's kind of weird I think credit actually works against you in this environment. If you look at what's happening in downtown Nashville, we have one of the best, sexiest, most dynamic commercial real estate markets in the world. And our class B office for CBD, like downtown, probably 50% occupied today. And you've got the Pinnacle building, which used to be a class A tower owned by one of the best office REITs in America it's going to be 45% occupied in Q4. And I just don't see the story of how you backfill that when you have brand new double A, whatever BS marketing brokers throw out there for like brand new- (laughs) Double A. This is the kind of thing you hear, right? So like you've got brand new Heinz product or whatever coming out of the ground and they're getting crazy rents, all these amenities and it's beautiful. That story makes a lot of sense to me, but backfilling some of these older- kind of class B tower deals, I think it's a nightmare. And like, I don't see how it ends. Another point I'll make, which is very frustrating for people, I know we're not going to try to get political on the show. You can't look at me with a straight face and say that when state, local, and federal government says, don't go to the office for two years, and then they turn around, they say, yeah, good luck, landlords, like have fun with it. That's just unfair. Like that's a market manipulation. Nobody's really talking about it. 
I'm not saying we need a bailout fund or TARP 3.0, but it's just fundamentally unfair to a lot of these landlords when they were dealt that card because it has this huge ripple effect that we're still digesting when you have government authorities manipulating yeah. your assets. I think an earlier point you made too, just the actual cost of office per square foot, it's pretty heavy. Once you're in with on a multi-story bigger building, so you can't just necessarily tear it down and wipe all that equity out and say, hey, we're going to build anything else here. It's it's a big number that's in a lot of the, a lot of the, even a class B multi-story, not super nice, not super sexy. The basis is still pretty high that you can't just immediately shift gears and tear it down or convert it to something else. So, but something's going to happen. Cut proposals. <laughs> yeah. It wiped out almost an entire sector. I mean, it's kind of wild to think about. I mean, would we have gotten here at some point? Probably right with technology, but it would have phased out over time instead of all happening so quickly. And it's interesting to watch. I mean, Brian, I, I do think that you and I should put an offering memorandum together and go buy the Pinnacle building and turn it into a 29-floor <laughs> honky-tonk. I think it would crush it. Brian, I'm interested. If you still have suburban office, like we, we own some suburban office that's still office. And we've had pretty good leasing with people leaving a high-end urban location and taking like 25% as much square footage being a little suburban, they come in a couple times and they're saving. They were paying $45 a square foot and now they're paying 12. And they're like, hey, this is great. I'll use it when I need it. Yeah. And I think Logan pointed this out, or Dave, you did, but these three to 5,000 square foot spaces, they'll fill. Like people want them, they need them. It's very hard, right? Hopefully you can get away with not doing too much TI work on them. Things that kill you are the 25 and the 50,000 square foot floor plates. They just murder you. Because in these markets, if it's suburban and it's not a super dynamic growing market, which for office today, there aren't really many of them left in America, it's just musical chairs. And every tenant broker rep knows which assets are rolling and which availability is coming. And so it's a downward spiral, right? You're negotiating against yourself which is part of the reason that you can't push rate is because when rates go low, every market has three developers that are Wild West cowboy guys that will throw up 300, 400,000 square foot spec and steal those tenants. And it's like a pernicious cycle that you cannot get out from. And it's really hard. That's why offices are really challenging asset class. Well, guys, this has been a great conversation. I mean, let's leave the audience with this. I mean, what's your outlook over the next... 12 months. What do you think is going to happen in the market? Or what are you looking to do? I think it goes back to our part of our conversation that was just around operations. I think we'll find some deals here and there that work, but we're going to really focus on how do we expand our operating margins just through operations and work on our current deals and drive that as much as we can. So I think some deals will come up just because people's debt's maturing and they can't refinance it, or there's always a reason that someone needs to get out of a deal. It's just not going to be the active market. At least I don't see that activity returning for at least 12 months. Yeah. For me, I think that a few things kind of stand out. One being we are entering into an election year. The second being if you review Dalio's thoughts on the changing world order, I do believe that the internal conflict in the United States of America is going to have a bigger impact on commercial real estate than anybody's kind of giving it credence to at this point. And I think that's what's playing out in the office sector. It's getting political. And so when that happens, landlords can get beat up really quickly because you have no levers to pull. So I think that is another thing to be thinking about is 
the psychology of the American people and how are we doing from a unified standpoint? What's that, what impact is that going to have? For example, what's happening in San Francisco or even New York City, rent control. I mean, that is a completely political statement to make in regards to what that can impact real estate. So we have to be thinking about that as as owners and sponsors over the next few years. And I think the election is going to be a very tumultuous time as well. And so that's going to cause even more fear in the market, which the biggest lender or the biggest capital stack provider in all of these are the lenders. And I'm having conversations on new acquisitions with over 50 banks, and it is not good. I mean, these are this is good located retail that's 85% occupied, and it is, hey, we are pencils down. We're not doing anything right now. So I do think that's going to cause quite a bit more of this transaction volume to be kind of where it's at. So I do think that lending needs to be opened back up. And the only way that's going to happen is if rates drop. So that's something to keep in mind as well. And then, yeah, I think that it's more of the same. You have to really take a step back in these types of periods of time and figure out who you want to be, what you want to focus on, because the decisions you make this year and probably the beginning of next year are going to impact the future. But if you're trying to make those decisions then, and the buying opportunity is also then, you're going to miss out on it. So what we're trying to do is just get ready, right? Just get ready for what we're focused on, what we learned over the last five or six years that we're not doing going forward, and how we're going to get to the next phase. So those are all things that I think about quite a bit, and I'm trying to understand. And I talked to a lot of folks about, which is no, that's not an answer for the next 12 months, but I think it is. I think those are topics that people don't necessarily speak about enough in the commercial real estate world, but we're seeing it kind of play out in the office sector right now. And so what's the next asset class that could be impacted, right? It's probably multifamily in regards to rent control and and affordability and things like that. So that's a very scary one to be in if you're in some of those states that the government can come in and tell you what you have to do to have residents in your building. That's a tough spot to be at. So I'll, I'll take two sides here. One is if you're an investor or a limited partner, if you take a step back, I think most of the world is falling apart. And if you just want to allocate capital towards something that you think will provide you with cash flow and long-term appreciation and have tax benefits, investing into domestic private equity and domestic commercial real estate is a really good bet if you have a 10, 20-year time horizon. Don't overthink it. Don't try to hit timing. Don't worry about the market cycle. Come up with an annual allocation and allocate accordingly into things that you believe and, and know and understand, right? But domestic private equity, domestic commercial real estate in the US, from an international perspective, when I talk to family offices that are in Singapore or Australia and South America, this is still the most attractive place to allocate capital, period. From a GP perspective, I think everything that Dave and Logan said is exactly spot on. Don't force it. Don't try to make deals happen. Take some time to improve your operations where you think they need to be improved and just wait because I do think there'll be some massive opportunity. And to Logan's point, I think the White House will use as bully pulpit to juice the economy running into the election year and that rates will have to go down in Q4. If you look at the bond market, bond guys are always smarter than the stock goons. They seem to think that there will be some cuts coming. That will be hugely accretive I think, to the market. So just hold on, stay alive, and wait for some of these deals to come to you. Thank you for joining us for today's conversation on the Capital Club podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to like, rate, and leave us a review. And please follow us on your favorite streaming platform so you never miss an episode. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.